Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Greetings, Daniel. How are we doing this morning? We are doing fantastic, because okay. today we're going to talk about sensation and perception. And if you're thinking to yourself, why? Why are these guys going to talk about sensation and perception? That doesn't sound maybe as interesting as I would want it to be, but we're going to be talking about how we sense and perceive memes. Memes. You know, I'm quite sure that's the shadiest thing you've said towards biophysiopsych in this whole podcast so far. <laughs> Probably. I try, to, I try to walk a fine line, but, uh, you know, like our last discussion, there's enough about the eye and the biological side that I think the textbook covers really well, but mm -hmm. I mean, we could talk about depth perception and completely bore everyone. Um, but uh, the book does a good job of that. Mm -hmm. Not boring everyone, but talking about depth perception and optical illusions. And uh, we're, we're social psychologists. So let's talk about something in the realm of social perception. Yes. And so memes memes they do matter so what, what do you know about um i i guess you, you know outside of the internet meme the definition of what a meme is so i am aware of kind of the development or the theoretical development from who's it richard dawkins mm -hmm. uh, of the meme and how it's kind of synonymous with gene except it deals within the social realm. So it's an interesting, like I find it interesting because typically what we see is like social scientists that take biological things and bring them into the social realm. Yes. But this is an instance of a bio person <laughs> taking a social thing and pulling it into the bio realm. Um, and you know, from Dawkins standpoint, he's a evolutionary biologist. So he's heavily invested in the theory of evolution and wanting to understand the evolutionary processes. And it's kind of apt. I mean, this idea of taking, you know, if, if that's all you study is how adaptive traits survive. In this case, well, what if this isn't a biological trait, but it's something we socially learn, we socially pass on. And it is adaptive in some way. Now, it may not be, as I'll, I'll kind of talk about, it, it may not be helpful mm -hmm. to the individual. It may pose some additional harm but ultimately it's adaptive um, mm -hmm. so yeah the, the the concept of the meme uh comes from dawkins's book the selfish gene 1976 and he uh he actually named this concept um uh my mimi or um, yeah. but it's he shortened it to meme or my meme uh meme um but uh, it's it's Latin for, um, or the, the Greek word, meaning that which is replicated. Oh, okay. And Interesting. He, yeah, and so he later abbreviated it to meme, which is similar to genes, which can be replicated and spread. And so, again, it's the social information. It's, um, to, to give you some more operational definitions, it's a unit of cultural information, uh, such as a cultural <laughs> practice or idea which is transmitted verbally or by repeated action from one mind to another. So social evolution in a sense, uh, cultural mm -hmm. evolution. Um, let's see. It can also be a self-propagating unit of cultural evolution, having resemblance to the gene. 
the unit of genetics. Um, and I came across a couple of articles talking about like the history of memes and old memes and like old, even like the first internet memes. And uh, one of them, the guy writing it asked everyone in the office, hey, what's a meme? And this was my favorite definition. A lot of them were standard. Some of them were said in memes. But uh, Anne in his office said, memes are millennials' way of hiding true and terrifying insecurities about how little they control their lives. Ah! <laughs> I was like, that's apt. That's very apt. We're right in the heart, Anne. Why'd you do that to me? <laughs> Because she's also a millennial and trying to hide the insecurities that she has. But yeah, Dawkins comes up with this, this concept. And um, I found some really interesting stuff. You can go to um, Dawkins' uh, website, one of his, his kind of newer organizational websites. And they have a whole bunch of information on memes and, and kind of talking about it. And there were some really interesting uh, concepts here. One is that um, Dawkins also termed what he called a memeplex. It's like a complex, but memes, it's um, okay. a meme may improve its prospects for survival by becoming part of a memeplex. It's a situation where a number of compatible memes join together in a manner that is mutually supportive. Oh no. So it's like the trad wife, Chad, uh, doomer meme family trio. Yes. So the more you combine these very maybe similar or memes that work well or adapt together. So when people are trying to combine, if we take it outside of Dawkins' context and bring it into the internet, that's mm-hmm. kind of what we're talking about. There's also something that was very kind of hard hitting. And, and I, I want to read this because it's very, I think, apt, even if when we're thinking about this in terms of internet memes, even though it was not talked about in relation to this. For a meme to survive and spread in a competitive environment, it must have attributes which give it advantages over other memes. It just takes on a completely different context when you don't think about this biologically. You think about this in relation to, to internet memes. Right. Huh. Whilst advantageous to the meme, they do not have to be the benefit or to the benefit of the host. A new method to make blades sharper is valuable knowledge and will either spread through population, uh, if allowed to do so, or will be guarded jealously by those who already possess the knowledge. Either way, its efficacy is an attribute which will guarantee its retention. So memes that have benefit, that are adaptive, will transfer. And that adaption mm. in the internet could, if you want to apply this to the internet, could be that, what's well, a meme that makes you laugh? And it will also make right. other people laugh. And so it transfers on. But also memes that make people groan and that allow you to take pleasure in that are still adaptive, mm-hmm. even if they're not necessarily uh, helpful to other people right and even like darker spicier memes that kind of point to an unspoken reality that people all kind of acknowledge but don't verbalize kind of get shared very quickly as well i find yeah and it kind of ties in if we want to talk about you know very dark memes or um memes that may you know have some underlying sinister quality uh, so, so he, and of course this is Dawkins, so there's a jab at religion here. Um, on the other hand, an idea such as life after death has an attribute that, since people are scared to death, a belief in a hereafter is likely to be a popular notion, and indeed is. It's, a, it's an idea, it's a bit of social information that is kind of transmitted and propagated, and it, it lives on because it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Terror management theory in a nutshell. 
Right, exactly. Is it such a belief may or may not benefit the host, though, if it removes the fear of death to the extent that, say, martyrdom is positively welcomed, the host clearly oh, does not cool. benefit, at least in life. Huh. Or at least in this life. Spicy. Yeah, it's it's uh I'd say it's a hot take from Dawkins, but that's a pretty regular take from Dawkins. So mm-hmm. interesting. Okay. And and so So do we I was gonna say in, in in order to see this play out, um I have a good example of how this would play out on the biological level, and then we can move into the internet level. But uh, it's sort okay. of a fascinating kind of comparative psychology take on memes. So, so there's this group of corvids in Japan. There's a city in Japan where this group of corvids were witnessed cracking nuts. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't do it themselves. Corvids don't have what Darwin defined as like those nut cracking beaks. And so what they would do is they would take these nuts and they would fly them over roads and they would drop them on the road. Mm-hmm. And they dropped them specifically on crosswalks. And so what would happen is the cars would roll over the nuts and break them. And then the bird, because they dropped them on the crosswalks, would be able to wait for people to start walking, and they would, they would hop out on the street and get their nut. Oh. Well, what's interesting about this is so that some of these corbids had developed this problem-solving skill in this one city. Well, as researchers mm-hmm. started investigating it, they started finding that that knowledge was spreading. Okay. Nearby cities started to see crows that would show the same behavior. And then Hmm. further out cities would start showing crows that would show the same behavior or ravens. Um, And so what they were doing is they were teaching each other. Mm -hmm. They were spreading those bits of social information where one corvid could show the other corvid, hey, this is how you do this. This is how we get, we can break these and we get free food. And if Mm -hmm. we keep doing this, and then the other corporate goes, oh, yeah, I get it. I'll do the same thing. And so they were able to teach each other. And and again, we see this with corvids in general. They're able to pass on uh, threats. They can describe people to one another to where they can um, recognize generations later, recognize people who have messed with the the, the corvids in the area. And it's uh, kind of a modern i mean there's plenty of modern examples of this happening i mean what we're doing here is a form of meme distribution you do not Mm -hmm. have to relearn psychology we can write it down and pass along the information that is adaptive that holds up that sticks over time and we can change it modify and the stuff that doesn't hold up dies out eventually Mm -hmm. Hmm. Can I uh, indulge in a quick little fantasy real quick? Sure. And a quick little fantasy real quick. So what you're talking about with the memes and Corvids, um, there's been a, so for those who do not know me in my personal life uh, who listen to this, I'm obsessed with octopus yeah. um, and cephalopods in general, but octopus specifically because they're absolutely fascinating. Like their brain is distributed amongst each of their arms and their, what we call the brain is actually just a relay center and each arm is autonomous. And they are uh, incredibly intelligent animals, but they don't live very long and they don't uh, learn from their parents. And they're very uh, solitary creatures. And so we don't see a lot of memeage going on with octopus, but in the last like three years, we've been finding octopus cities where 
there are like parts of coral or parts of like abandoned like shipwrecks or specific areas in like uh, coastal regions where you will find just a whole conclave of octopus. And uh, what, they, what did they call it? The metro, metroctopus? <laughs> metroctopus? And so one of the interesting things is that perhaps, like we typically think of the octopus as being like just individually intelligent. Um, and this could be a new adaptation that they're just now being social or we're just now finding out that they're being social. So we could either see octopuses make zero changes over the next 50 years, or we could see them start adopting memes, which would be particularly hilarious considering that they can change the color and texture of their skin. So they could probably be pretty wow. creative with their memeage. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So, uh -huh. so interesting. I'm, I was going to call them like the corvids of the sea, but the corvids might be octopus of the land. That's what's going to happen. Right, yeah. I, I, I tell my students when I talk about this that I, it's not going to be all Planet of the Apes, that the corvids are going to take over the earth. And that, yeah, I think at this point the octopus will take the sea. And then they'll... I, I'm quite sure. They'll, li they'll live in <laughs> harmony. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I understand why so, yeah, like, all of those Lovecraftian horrors are cephalopods, because freaky smart. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 50 years from now, let us look back on this podcast and be like, Thomas was right. The octopuses are organizing. <laughs> they've, they've subjugated us. They're making us continue this podcast for their own benefit. Oh, no. <laughs> if, if only, if only we could still be doing this in 50 years. So, all right. We've talked about what a meme is. I guess we should mm -hmm. get a little bit into meme history. I'll give you cool. some. We typically associate memes with the internet, but there seems mm -hmm. to be a massive body of, of, of knowledge. I mean, if you're kind of outside of the internet sphere, any any English major, any anthro or you know anthropologist, sociologist would probably go like, of course, of course, we've had memes in society before then. And so I tried to kind of delve into, well, what's the first meme? Mm -hmm. and, and there are a lot of possible examples of what might be the first meme. I'm trying to think of the right word for that, but um, the I cave painting? Yes. It does seem that there is evidence that the first meme may be tied to a particular cave painting, and I'll get to that because I'll let you guess okay. what of. Okay. Uh, I'm jumping ahead of you, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, because we're going to go back in time. We're going to start with modern stuff, and, and so there's an article on The Thrillist that kind of talked about memes and I mean, it's not, we're not talking like academic article, but they really went in depth in trying to find it. They, um, they kind of enjoyably came up with their standard for what a meme was, which is something, you know, if you're delving into some new research, you'd probably want to do. They said a meme has to have four things. It has to have a message, a clearly definable central message or reference that's understood, relatable by, common, uh, by, by commonly shared knowledge or experience. The medium of the message isn't relegated to an image or text. It can be either or both, uh, or video or audio. So it, it can be anything, but it has to have a clear, understandable message that kind of transcends, in this mm -hmm. case, time. And yes. I think that you, we can say that for modern memes. The modern memes that are most successful need, like, they have to be kind of simple or they have to be relatable. 
Like, even if it's mm-hmm. relatable in an absurd way, there has to be some level of message that you take. Right. The meme has to move through both time and space fluently, yes. which is why you don't... So if your meme that you're making has too many words, yes. um, it's not going to be as successful. Right. It requires evolution, so the meme cannot remain static. It must be adopted okay. and remixed by a community of people that embrace it. And so, again, like it needs to be personalized and modified and remixed and put into other stuff. And again, if you look at modern memes, there's a good chance of that happening. That meme dies out because it goes through this. I mean, the only reason memes are dying out so fast, arguably, is because they're going through this evolution so quickly. It's so easy for mm-hmm. us to get that knowledge out there. We go back to these older memes. Actually, some of them still hold up today. We go back to these older memes. They they spread further and they lasted longer because they had more time to be Okay. They have to be malleable. So it, and the meme itself must aid in its own evolution by having defined characteristics that can be changed while maintaining and preserving some semblance of the original message. So again, kind okay. of that message has to exist but it has to exist in a way that allows it to be transformed, allows it to change okay. a little bit. So like satire, you know, like take like satirizing something would be a good example of something transforming, but like then the message is maybe there, you understand where it's coming from. And then of course, effect. It has to reach a certain level of popularity and understanding or the message won't matter. Perhaps the most important part of the meme is its virality. It has to go viral Ooh. to be a meme. And if, if you're keeping up with that, message, evolution, malleability, and effect, it spells meme. So let's go over. I so, appreciate that. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that, yes. So the first meme in the modern sense, that's a little unsure. Uh, we do know what the first or what is arguably the first 3D meme. And it Can I ask a question? Effect. Yeah. What do we mean by modern? Do we mean by contemporary or like as in the modern like period? Internet meme. I think oh, okay. It's, I think cool. it's where they're going with kind of the modern meme era. Like kind of how we think of memes today. Is is it some sort okay, of... Okay, so not the 1920s. No, like top text, bottom text, some funny picture, uh, something with some text or just, you know, some odd face if you want to go like one of those surreal deep fried memes. Um yeah, so they believe that the first 3D meme was the dancing baby that appeared in email chains in the 96. So there was this, um, it danced to that um, hooked on a feeling. Hmm. Yeah, you look it up. It's um, it's fascinating. It gained so much popularity. It ended up on Ally McBeal, a very popular television show at the time uh, that most of our audience may, rem- may not remember <laughs> uh, or ever have heard of. But it's, it, it was this example of something that went viral. So kind of like the idea of these chain letters, these chain emails that were sent out to people. Well, it was in, included in one of these as a video. And this was back before we really understood things like, well, that's going to be a risky click. And it was just this 3D dancing baby who danced hmm. to Hooked on a Feeling. And okay. That's pretty much it. It was huge at the time. Other than that... They're not entirely sure. There are a lot of things that seem to be worthy of the first meme, but we have examples of things that did them first or that are maybe better examples. So like early websites that actually, you know, kind of overrode some of this stuff or, or you know, maybe did it in a, a different way. So like, 
call it the same meme. It doesn't transfer. It doesn't come as viral. They did argue that that would may possibly be the first internet meme are emoticons. Okay. Now become emojis, which would fit all of that. They they have a message. They're right. clearly understandable. They evolve and change over time. They're malleable. So that happy face emoji is the same as a colon and a closed parenthesis. And, and so, sometimes that eggplant is just an eggplant. Sometimes it is. We'll get to that. <laughs> Pre-internet, there's some really interesting stuff. Like we have examples, if you go back to the 1970s, um, with the publication of Lord of the Rings, there were the Frodo Lives buttons. And Frodo Lives could be a meme. It could be an example of that. The Andre the Giant uh, kind of face of the Obey and um, they still do clothing and art that's sort of tied to that. Those also might be the example of memes where you're kind of taking something mm-hmm. that becomes kind of viral on the street. And then the two that I went and looked some research up on, um, one is the Kilroy was here. And um, yeah. it's, it's really interesting. They note that Kilroy doesn't appear. Uh, so it, it's this little face, this little guy kind of looking like he's, he's hanging over a fence. He's got a really long nose, and it says Kilroy was here. Um, it apparently started on some shipping containers, and apparently some people who saw that went into the army, and they proceeded to kind of draw it everywhere. So it, it kind of spread around the world during, like, World War II era. But it seems to be older than that. That uh, it, this, this one article I found that, that Kilroy doesn't appear to have originated entirely with U.S. servicemen, though. A similar doodle, um, and this this name will be very familiar to modern memers, uh, Mr. Chad was scrawled throughout Britain as a comment on shortages and rations during the war. Chad was similar in appearance to Kilroy, so little hands coming over an edge, long nose, little round head, um, but he was accompanied by a different message. Not Kilroy was here, but what? No tea? Hmm. Or whatever the goods or shortage was. So it was just W-O-T, what, no T. And Chad predates Kilroy by a few years and may have been created by the British cartoonist George Chatterton in the late 1930s. Mm-hmm. So this is, okay, so this is modern in the sense that I thought originally. Yes, yeah. So if we're talking modern-esque in terms of, like, the modern era, not mm-hmm. internet era, that, that, yes, Kilroy might be one of the first memes, but... Okay. We can go. We can go further. Mm-hmm. Before we go back too far, um, I also did some research on the S. That that one S that everyone draws in school. Oh, the S. Yeah. They call it the Stussy S because there's a, a logo, a brand. Emily Coates, who's worked alongside Sean Stussy since 1985, actually said it is not the original Stussy logo. That she personally gets asked this a lot, but people have been drawing this S long before Stussy was established. People have just assumed it was Stussy, and it sort of spread from there. It's actually quite amusing. It seems the S appeared throughout all of North America, South America, Europe, Russia, Asia, and Australia. Some people think it's a 90s thing. Others report seeing it as early as the 1960s. There were theories that it was the symbol of some 80s metal hairband. But actually, that got debunked because the one band it's kind of close to uses a slightly different S, and it's on like a staff. Okay. 
Other people thought it was the original emblem for Stussy, uh, the clothing brand. Others thought it was an incarnation of the Superman logo. No one was sure. The best explanation that they came up with is that um, the, they, they interviewed this one, uh, one person who said, the reasons kid, that kids probably go to this test is that it because it's, it's, it's because it's a Mobius strip. He said that referring to the sort of looped one surface shapes that MCS, MC Escher was fond of drawing, it can't be drawn continuously, but it does have perpetual flow. Mm -hmm. And the the writer of this, the article that I'll, I'll link as well to this S article, the Stussy S article, said that I, I think he was onto something. Most nine-year-olds can't draw. So when someone hands them a magical recipe to create something fairly cool on demand, that'll go viral. Right. Especially when the shape has to be sophisticated. Mathematical lineage of a Mobius strip. Yes, I'd learned the term 10 minutes earlier, but whatever, Mobius strip. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so you tell them, like, hey, this, it, it's this really cool design. It's really simple to draw. And you can, like, you can make it longer. You can turn it into chains. Like, you can evolve it. Yeah. It's going to spread. I mean, any kid who can do that is going to be like, this is cool. And mm -hmm. go with it. Which is, is is probably why it, it it gained some, and so what we might actually be see, be seeing in this case isn't that it's something that actually spread, but may have also been independently developed in different parts of the world, because it's, okay, it's something that and then and likely spread from there because you see it everywhere. So it's mm -hmm. it's it's I mean there might be an origin story for it, <laughs> but. But it's unlikely because of the spread and without the internet. Right, right. Yeah, we're talking yeah. pre, we're talking 1960s, maybe earlier yeah. for some of this. Hmm. So, so it might, if, it, if it was, if it does have an origin, then it might have to do with like, you know, colonial trade that spread it. <laughs> if it's the 60s we're talking about. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. So hmm. I've got... I got, I got two two additional bullet points on this. We have to go deeper. Okay. So how do we get deeper from there? So if we go back to the Thrillist article, one of the things that they argue of where these memes come from, what might be the first meme, or at least closer to the first meme, is memento mori. Mmm. Latin for remember that you have to die. Mm -hmm. And the phrase, more often than not, accompanied by skulls, bones, and other symbols of mortality. Kind of right mm -hmm. up Yeah. I'm about it's a viable candidate for the first meme. It's a sentiment and imagery of imminent death. It's appeared in almost every culture on Earth, at least existing since ancient Romans, because it's in Latin. Probably in one form or another, since humans got all uppity and evolved from apes, says this article. <laughs> and like many of great of the great memes of today and yesterday, it can work with or without text, or even sans image, imagery. The mm -hmm. central the central message of "you only live once." Mm -hmm. And so, what's really interesting, Yolo. Um, yeah, yeah, that's where they go with it. Is that um, I, I love this line? Despite depicting more symbols of the macabre than a midwestern hot topic. This meme is not necessarily meant to be morbid. While it accompanies a lot of that, a lot of it is, um, it's a clear, concrete message. You know, 
the concrete message has evolved while always remaining malleable and with an effect that lives on today. Live your life to the fullest. Time is precious. YOLO. It takes on the full capacity of what the movie can take. And so it's a good front runner. How optimistic. For the earliest me. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of morbid. I mean, hey, Gallo's humor is still funny. There's, there's yeah. a bunch of people who are trying to write about why all these millennials are making memes about depression. Right. Might explain um, some of it. So before you tell me the competitor for the first meme, yep. I'm just going to throw out an idea here that if one of the top contenders relates to death, yep. I'm going to guess that the other one relates to sex. Yeah, so let me, let me read you this. Okay. And, and then you can confirm or deny that statement. Because it doesn't actually say the answer in here. So if we go deeper, quote, those have existed pretty much since we started keeping records of these things. This imagery, imagery experienced extensively in the earliest cave paintings, archaic art, and on a glut of medieval age texts with a creative illustration. The form has certainly changed throughout the years with a central message remaining constant. Is it the dick pic? It is. It is the dick pic. Absolutely yep. right. Yep. Did we, not, did we talk about the penises at a... Uh... Uh, what is it with Dr. Henley at the temple, the brewery, the oh shoot, what's it called? He's gonna get onto me. Go Begley Tepe. Go Begley Tepe. Yeah. yeah, no, all the animals have penises, like huge penises. Yeah, I I had to do some research looking into Rule Thirty Four. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you find some really interesting like old art. That's uh, yeah, very risque to say the least. Yeah. There's there's a lot of it. Yeah, not not only is this representative of human vitality and sex, it also took on a meaning as a subversive statement against societal norm with the graffiti, a place it still holds today. Yep. Old, ancient graffiti. Huh. Jenkins said, like death, this is another meme representing a fundal, fundamental aspect of human reality. Their intent is very similar to many of the current memes in our culture. Interesting. So the granddaddy meme is the dick pic. It's yeah, it's it's the eggplant now. The eggplant now. No, seriously. Okay. So wow, I was on I was on point with that one. Yeah, that that yeah, apparently there are just some things that transcend human society and it turns out we're really into you know, interested in for lack of a you know, life and death <laughs> or what can yep. make life and death. Um and I mean, if you have to think, like, what are the core aspects? Like, we're born, we reproduce, we die. And so those those common aspects, like, can be distilled into the most, in the, you know, basic form. Memes. <laughs> yeah, and be turned Making into a bunch me feel of like my whole research is on memes now. That's basically it. I mean, everything. Everything is memes. That's Freud. Life, I mean, that's that's Freud in a nutshell. Freud is memes. I was about to say, if we don't have any more history, this is sounding very Freudian. Heroes and Thanatos. Yes. So, I'm getting some libidinal energy from this conversation. I think we need to rename this one. Uh, Freud is memes. Freud is memes. Everything is memes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the history of memes. That's where memes may have come from. We haven't actually talked about any modern uh, internet era 
Mm-hmm. And even those, I mean, a lot of them we can't get to. We don't have three hours. Yeah, and, you know, if we talk about too many modern memes, it's going to date this podcast. Yeah, yeah, because when I, I mean, the memes that I grew up with are long dead. Um, I mean, I, honestly, the memes from last month are long dead, but... Yeah, like, we're we're through a quick cycle. If the meme cannot, like you said, merge into a memeplex, it usually goes away. Um, so... One thing that I will say about memes, and this is kind of where I delved into my research, is I kind of took our idea from Freud and Jung and kind of built and kind of looked at not so much the history and the function of memes, but how are people utilizing memes? And so there is a concept that I absolutely adore called meme magic. And so meme magic, I guess we should operate, since we already know what a meme is, we should operationalize magic. And so magic comes from a tradition of magical paganistic practices, very exclusive to the 20th century. And it kind of originates with Crawley, Alistair Crawley from the UK. And Crawley said that magic is the science and art that provokes change and conformity with the will, all intentional acts are acts of magic. And so... It's like energy flow? It's like energy flow, but in a very physical sense. So the creation of this podcast, he might consider magic. We have our will and our intention, and we are projecting it out into the world and into other people's minds, and it's going to be manipulating them in some way. Our aim is to provide open access information. And if people are getting educated through this podcast, then the magic has worked, essentially. I can call myself like a science wizard? Yeah, no, absolutely. He took a very broad, very modernistic view of magic. So it's not so much that we're like, he did do ceremonial magic. That's kind of what he's known for. And, um, you know, identifying deities and you know pulling powers and stuff like that but the core of magic for Crawley was just using your will to exert change in the world I mean to be fair I do follow protocols when I run studies and um, I sometimes pray to all sorts of beings and hope to get a publication in press so I guess we're not so unlike Crowley mm-hmm we're just a little less uh, controversial, um, but we won't yes. get too much into Crawley, but I do want to bring up Crawley kind of as our definitionally what we're talking about, because what came out of Crawley is a area of magic called chaos magic. And so chaos magic is very much built on kind of our previous conversations about Yoon and Freud. So the idea is that the intention and the power comes from the unconscious and then it is manifested into the real world and so if you want to do magic then you have to take your conscious desire and wish and put it into your unconscious so that way the unconscious could then move it out through the collective unconscious and affect the real world around you that's that's a lot to take in (laughs) that's a lot to take in yeah Um, Let me give you some examples, and maybe this will bring us back to memes. So 
Austin Osmond Spare, who was Crawley's, one of Crawley's, like, students, um, believed, so he was kind of the first to outline this idea, and in practice, this turned into automatic writing, or psychography, and so the idea is that you close your eyes, you sit at a table in the dark, and you just start writing, and you don't think about what you're writing. Um, there's some older, more like superstitious parlor games where you're like writing with the hand of like a spirit guiding you. But for spare, this was the unconscious like projecting onto the piece of paper. Um, and he also pioneered sigils. Are you familiar with the sigil? Um, a little bit. I do know, um, I think what might be some early World War II symbolism, we maybe even argue our memes. Um, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll throw my two cents on that in. I mean, outside of like obvious things like the swastika being in reverse to go from peace to fear um, as, as mm -hmm. a, kind of a cult symbol. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So sigils can be, you know, culturally significant or culturally present. Um, and that has a different name, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but for personal magical utility, sigils are images that you use to load with your intention, and then it will enact change. So you do a random doodle, you make a series of geometric lines that are significant to you. You can manipulate the shapes of letters and, you know, meld them together into intricate designs. Um, and then what's important is that after you load the sigil with your intention, you're supposed to forget it. Okay. And so you get, you have to repress that desire, that intention, so that way it pops into the unconscious. And so typically people will burn these, they will bury them, they'll put them underneath their like door uh, mat or something like that. So that way they're not consciously interacting with them. Alternatively, you can put these out into the real world. And so sometimes you can use a sigil in like public space. So it'll be a sticker that you put on the side of the road or in a bathroom or in a hallway or on an elevator and so other people's energies load that sigil for you and it's more likely to get into the collective unconscious or you can do like crowley and just masturbate onto it once a day and load it with libidinal energy um we have a reference for that um we will include yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, on, on, one so hand, on one hand like according to this if, if we're taking crowley's view Yes. The, the, the Stussy S could be a sigil that someone created. It, it maybe had some mm -hmm. S-shaped meaning. They put intention or energy or worse into it. It spread mm -hmm. to the collective unconscious, and then everyone drew mm -hmm. it elementary and high school. Yes. Okay. And everyone who comes into contact then learns it and then reinforces that. Um, it's kind of similar to the idea of, like, the closest comparison I could pull from this one without, you know, memes specifically, uh, would be logos. Yeah, okay. Logos are kind of a sigil, so you constantly, so you have your intention with your logo, it needs to be, like, for McDonald's, it needs to be yellow and red, because yellow and red make people feel warm and hungry and fuzzy inside. You've got our golden arches that are old, so we've got a callback that make people feel nostalgic, and then we're going to put it everywhere where everybody can see it. 
and everybody's present with it, everybody recognizes it, and so the sigil gains more power if more people recognize it and perceive it, essentially. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, it this runs, one of the things I found interesting about this is that it, we're intersecting a lot with our Edward Bernays manufactured uh, consent. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in, um, and, and this is supposed to, I mean, if we're talking about, like, weird conspiracy theories in World War II, it's supposed to have to do with Crowley, is that um, that Crowley helped to develop for the British government a number of symbols and counter symbols, counter signs to uh, counteract the Nazi swastika. Mm. And uh, two of them were made, and this is again, this is the, I need to definitely find a good source of this, but um, the rumor is is that two of them um, are symbols for masculinity and femininity, which are represented by the thumbs up. What we talked about before as the oldest symbol for masculinity yeah. and the peace sign. Huh. And so what how true that is, take that with a grain of salt, but it is this really kind of interesting view of like how and those those would be really good examples of memes. The mm-hmm. thumbs up and the peace sign, dependent on their use, their meaning can change, but mm-hmm. since World War II esque, maybe a little bit before then era, like we, we do have a common view of what those are. Like we, I mean, very Western Western civilization, we have a very clear this is what thumbs up is. Two thumbs up is even better. Um, and then this is this is what the peace sign is. Unless you're British and you do the reverse peace sign. Mm-hmm. And if you're in Japan, you stick your whole arm out. <laughs> um, so let's take this. A, so that, that's a good segue. So there is conversations within these magical circles that one of the elements to memes that kind of extends beyond the framework that you provided is that the meme needs to be a callback to the collective unconscious. And so it needs to embody an archetype, an egregore slash zeitgeist. So an egregore and a zeitgeist are essentially the same thing, except egregore is more French. um, And we usually use the word zeitgeist. So it has to like embody the spirit of the time or it has to be an idea that arises out of a group of people um, or a collection that people constantly run into. So when we talk about like behaviorism being a zeitgeist, we could also call behaviorism an egregore. Um, They're fairly synonymous. So we need to either connect our memes to a archetype or we need to connect it to an egregore. And a meme can also create an egregore as well. And so that's, you know, like we just talked about with the thumbs up and the peace sign, we're calling back to human anatomy and the masculine and the feminine. Um, When we're talking about McDonald's, we're calling back to Americana. Something like that. So that is something that the meme magicians are very interested in, in terms of what meme magic is. So you're taking your intention you're forming it into a sigil and the sigil is taking the form of an internet meme and the context that we're talking about that is then distributed it gains collective power and then it travels if 
it has a strong enough connection to the collective unconscious to enact change. Um, I, I will read, oh, I'm, go ahead. I'm just trying to think now, because I'm thinking of actual memes within the last several years, um, maybe even older, and how, like, all right, so what does this call back to? And maybe, maybe because it's not as successful a meme, maybe it didn't do that good of a job. But I just, I kind of <laughs> wonder, like, like how how beyond? I mean, if we're really taking this all at face value here, <laughs> mm -hmm. how does you know? I don't know. Anyway, we'll continue. Yeah, we're playing in some murky territory. Yeah, I I'll have two good examples. I have two good examples okay. for it, I promise. Um, I do want to. I will not be citing this text in this podcast because this individual is one such meme magician. Um, I did purchase uh, the book uh, on occult mimetics. That's not the title, but it's about occult mimetics because he is a very much a, a 4chan, 8chan, manipulating the conscious. Um, just to kind of give you a context for this book, it was published in 2016 prior to November. Oh, okay. So... Um, he defines mimet occult, mimetic occultism is the deliberate use of mimetics in the otherwise mundane secular sense and the manipulation of communication in order, in, in order to cause a reflective change in the viewer, listener, or beholder of what is being altered, manipulated, or communicated in a general sense. So it's very close to propaganda. So we're like, but we're like literally we'll delving see. into the territory of like we're talking about like you know for like the soul of the country like a literal meme war mm -hmm. in the shadows so a shadow meme war mm -hmm. with magic with magic yes so very much callback to what we were discussing earlier between Aleister Crowley and the British versus Hitler and the Nazis because both sides were very occulty during World War II. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So we've got that kind of parallelism going on. And then we also have the weird way that Freud gets applied in the real world and actually works. <laughs> Just not necessarily with therapy, what he intended. <laughs> so um, I have two examples of memes. So that have occult principles okay so the basically you test the strength of your sigil if you will by how much it influences the reality around you so okay. this can be intentional or unintentional like in the creation of the meme so our first intentionally magical meme is the guy fox mask from yeah. Yeah. alan moore who was a pagan anarchist um, who wrote V for Vendetta for those uninitiated and The Watchmen? Yes, so all of the edgy graphic novels from the 80s. I mean, so he's got Rorschach's mask too. That's also, again, very callback to some like Freudian concepts, some you know. Oh, yeah, okay. So we get this in the 80s, um, and it's very much a symbol of resistance against authoritarianism and. The un collective unconscious callback that's usually associated is Prometheus. Okay. And giving, so we're... Giving fire to the masses. Giving fire to the masses. 
And so stealing fire, giving humans the will of the gods. Um, he said in a interview that, quote, I was also quite hard. So basically how this worked out as a spell is that you have people all over the world using Guy Fox masks, masks to conceal their identity in political activism against authoritarianism or what they perceive as authoritarianism. And so this is this has been in the anonymous on uh, 4chan, uh, the Arab Spring protests, Occupy Wall Street, Hong Kong uprising, protests in Poland, Canada, Thailand, Venezuela, and even the capital riots of this year. We even saw Guy Fox masks at, at BLM protests as well over 2020 summer, the summer of 2020. And so in response to this, he says, I was also quite heartened the other day when watching the news to see that there were demonstrations outside the Scientology headquarters over here and that they suddenly flashed to a clip showing all these demonstrators wearing V for Vendetta Guy Fox masks. That pleased me. That gave me a little warm glow. Um, I suppose when I was writing V for Vendetta, I would in my secret heart of hearts have thought, wouldn't it be great if these ideas actually made an impact? So when you start to see that idle fantasy, idle fantasy intrude on the regular world, it's peculiar. It feels like a character I created 30 years ago has somehow escaped into the realm, escaped the realm of fiction. And so drawing our attention to our secret heart of hearts, yeah. it very, very, very much feels like a repressed sigil language. Yeah, I mean, kind of almost like a, I mean, though it, it has it has shown up in areas where maybe it really shouldn't have, but um, but it's or maybe, a meme. But the it's meme, a meme, though. Yes. Oh, no, definitely. So it definitely. makes sense that it would show up at like the Capitol riot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If the yeah. people there believe that the authoritarian democratic regime is overthrowing the world and instituting global Marxism, yep. I'm quite. I would expect to see a guy fox mask there. <laughs> That yeah. seems appropriate. Yeah, I mean, almost the same way. I think you could probably make a much, uh, a, a very similar argument to kind of the nature of like the Confederate flag, is that mm -hmm. it it has this kind of underlying meaning, and that underlying meaning is not a positive one, um, but it has become kind of part of cultural consciousness in a lot of ways, where people who are kind of representing those aspects or representing the systems in which those aspects are promoted um, or, mm -hmm. you know, whether implicitly or not. Um, mm -hmm. But it has become this kind of, this, this symbol, this, this um, you know, for quote unquote heritage, um, you know, heritage for a time when- Or rebellion. Yeah, yeah, for rebellion, again, despite the fact that like, it doesn't really make much sense if you're talking about like I'm a red-blooded American and this is my symbol of pride. Mm -hmm. um, but but as we've already demonstrated, memes adapt and change and right. change meaning in different contexts. So right. we would expect them to have a different conceptualization of that imagery. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, a second one that doesn't, as far as we know right now, does not have a magical intention behind the creation. I could be proven wrong. You're a bit more of a nerd than I am, but we have the Joker. <laughs> oh, man. The Joker has moved, as far as I know, unintentionally from a 
just a caricature of chaos and kind of an antagonistic force within a larger Batman universe to kind of the very similar figure to Guy Fawkes, but not quite a Prometheus, more like a Dionysus, Dionysus kind of figure. And so we get more of the chaos instead of the anarchy and kind of this like rebellion against those who you feel are harming you or a dissatisfaction with the status quo. Um, That's that, because we live in a society. Because we live in a society. A society. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see the Joker being meant to be that way. So I, I think it's a good example of a meme because it has developed. Mm-hmm. Um, the symbol mm-hmm. has stayed the same. So, I mean, whether you go to the original comic book, I mean, uh, maybe that's some of the original, the original comic book's so weird. And then, like, the Cesar Romero, like, Adam West Batman Joker is just more, like, mad. I mean, kind of mm-hmm. not the Mad Hatter, because the Mad Hatter is also a Batman villain. But but this idea of, like, like this this, again, like this force of chaos. And that is something that has been, like, despite the fact that different actors have played him, that he's been represented in different ways. Yeah, that the, the Joker has kind of been this, this force of, of, of chaos and disorder. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. But he's kind of merged a little bit more with the Guy Fawkes uh, archetype a little bit. Because like the Guy Fox mask, the Joker mask has shown up in protests all over the world as well. well and mean, so it has traveled to Hong Kong. Um, so typically, like within our American context, particularly when the last Joker movie came out, there was like, people were calling it an incel movie. And I don't, have you seen if it? we're thinking in terms of, I have not yet. I really want to though. Watch it really together. Um, I'd love to get some of your thoughts. It it was um, it was interesting, and you might be able to understand like why they might say mm-hmm. that, but also like why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, but I, despite not seeing this movie, yeah. I do recognize that people who feel like they're under oppressed regimes have been adopting the Joker mask. Well, and, and the newest, and, the newest one too had a lot of underlying themes of like societal ills cutting mm-hmm. funding for mental health and I mean, there's a lot of stuff that that you could easily pull from there to say like like oh no i get it like there are these social things that we probably should be fighting for and then like it's the system uh shaking mm-hmm. my fist in the air um yeah that's uh but it, it makes me wonder too if, if that's that's maybe not a byproduct of certain circles and then the kind of the way in which you know the Guy Fox masks. I mean, even you, you look at things like 4chan and Anonymous ten years ago, you know, five years ago, versus now. Let's say ten. Um, I think they're that old. Should be. Yeah, at least at least five to ten years ago to to where they yeah, are. Yeah, 4chan's kind of old. Yeah, to where Anonymous they are. is old. Yeah, and and so that that they've evolved, the site has evolved, but also like. The individuals who are kind of spreading those memes and, and picking up, kind of like taking on the next generation of Guy Fox mask wearers and stuff like that, that that, or kind of keeping the torch alive, are are also likely to be the same people who are spreading Joker memes. They're likely mm-hmm. to be the same people who are spreading, you know, Pepe the Frog memes. They're likely to be the same people who are kind of engaging in these 
heights of of rhetoric and and whatnot that i mean in, with the negative side that that's come with it that that that's also in part you know what's that's been associated with mm-hmm. but also just based off of our definitions memes though like i feel like all three of these are going to live on regardless if those groups even exist and they have yeah. different meanings in different contexts so it's easy to say like yeah we've got some like gamers and their mom's house in America who are kind of in Sully using the Guy Fox mask, but we also have like Hong Kong protesters using Guy Fox. Right. They're going to live on. And that would be part of what you need. You need that virality. You need yeah. that ability for it to pass on. You need it to be. And so that again, despite the fact that and if we're getting back to our perception topic, um, despite the fact that these are different people who are maybe using it in slightly different ways, their perceptions very similar. That yes, we'll see the same underlying archetype and message of the meme. Right, right. Mm-hmm. This agent of chaos and the Joker is also an agent of chaos against the system, mm-hmm. against the status quo. And if the status quo is putting you down, whether you're a Hong Kong pro, you know, Hong Kong protester, you're perceiving that, you know, like this person blocked me on Twitter. Uh, this this is 1984. This is censorship. Um, but like mm-hmm. it's it's that perception of it. It's it's that um, I mean it's it's in a way I'm I'm not I'm not sure if we would call this bottom up or top down processing. But you're 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 taking everyone's taking in similar information, but they're processing it and saying, all right, we see the same thing because we have access to these these memes, these these cultural mm-hmm. systems, these arch modern archetypes. Mm-hmm. So, and I would say the big difference between the Joker and Guy Fox, of course, is that the Joker is kind of like a despondent figure. Um, yeah. Whereas the Guy Fox, especially within the comic book series, is very like old school traditional anarchy where it's like yeah. mutual and taking care of people and freedom and like, you know, setting up support structures after you've overthrown the, the fascist government. Right, right. Yeah, so very different. So, you know, when you burn it down, do you rebuild it or do you just... Yeah, do you strategically burn it down? Like, there's there's those kinds of nuances there. Um, moving away from political actors as archetypes, we have the last one, and this is what our meme wizard talks mostly about uh, because this is written in 2016, but yeah. our Pepe the Chaos God. And so Pepe the Frog was utilized as a mimetic spell specifically in 2016 um, through the 4chan, 8chan network. Um, It has uh, archetypal power in that it relates to an Egyptian chaos god that is a frog. And when the internet found that, they were absolutely rejoiced. It's called Keck. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. So, and this... Pepe the Chaos God, the message that, like, the very clear message that was sent was smugness. And smugness is transcendent across cultures, across timelines, and it was within the context, of course, of the rising morning star that was Donald Trump in the 2016 election, um, where it was a long shot, and then it got closer, and closer, and closer, and closer. And it happened, and and then he lost four years later. Right, but the, I guess we introduce our egregore 
yeah. our egregore of smugness from the right through that entire process. And and that again, if we're talking about even that with like the zeitgeist, like that goes back. Like we could say mm-hmm. that what like 2016 and, and Pepe and this kind of like perfect storm would be an example of a lot of historical stuff that goes back to I mean pre-Nixon, mm-hmm. especially post-Nixon with like the rise of, of Rupert Murdoch and, and Gingrich and really powerful like Reagan. It's better like we are fine with it as long as you're hurting because we're smug. We're Mm-hmm. Type, um, type, type political figures that that kind of embody that, and then, you know, I mean, eventually you get to a point where they become sort of, I want to say, memes within themselves. I mean, um, they do kind of turn into memes themselves. Um, I will say the smugness, like at least on the ground level, from like the people who are sharing the Pepe in this way. Um, and we kind of talk about this in this podcast quite a bit, but kind of the uh, elitist lizard brain nature of academics mm-hmm. that talk down to, you know, undereducated people oh, yeah. who were literally melting down on TV all through 2016. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that was very satisfying to watch. Oh, I'd imagine so, especially if you're, um, if you're really big into fighting against the system, if you're a huge fan of the Joker. And you're mm-hmm. seeing someone get really smug and not willing to, you know, try to understand something. Or um, I don't want to go too far down that road because, like, there's plenty of people who have tried to understand. Or we're talking about a lot of different things concerning politics. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, that that yeah, there's there's some. There there's a uh, Schadenfreude aspect. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, it's, it's, yeah. And I, I think, I could talk about this and it provided, like, I don't know, in terms of, like, affecting reality, like, we did have the Democratic nominee, like, and the entire political ecosystem labels as a hate symbol and go to war against the meme, which probably only was a waste of, because they were putting more energy into it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's much like the, uh, the Streisand effect that if you bring attention mm-hmm. to it, it will only bring more attention to it. Mm-hmm. If you try to stop people from paying attention to it, they will pay more attention to it. That's reactance. That's what we talked about last, last week. Yeah, last week our reactance bias, exactly. So, no, that's why it was effective, is that it was both a false target and also a collective egregore zeitgeist of that time. And honestly, if not for maybe focusing on it too much, it would have probably died. It would have probably, yeah. it would have probably stayed where it maybe was before it kind of got picked up, where it was kind of this like, hey, this guy drew this comic, he's got this sad frog, um, which is kind of where it's going back to to some extent. There's a lot of aspects yeah. of, of 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 different types of those drawings or kind of variations of, of Pepe the Frog that is kind of regressing back to maybe its more original meaning. But then again, that could be part of that evolution. Like it did get viral. It can evolve. Mm-hmm. For some people, that meaning will never change. It will forever now be associated with that. Um, mm-hmm. Much in the same way that a lot of those symbols and, and things, which for good or ill, there are a lot yeah. of things that have been adopted by a lot of these groups. Uh, I've, I've had recent conversations about um, how a lot of like 
white supremacist Aryan communities have adopted a lot of um, Norse symbolism. And like mm -hmm. as someone who has always just been like love Norse mythology, I mean, mythology in general, but, you know, Norse mythology being a part of that, it's, it's like, come on, guys, don't ruin Thor. Like, please. But on the other hand, it's going to be it's a lot Maryland harder. Daniel. Yeah, it's, it, but on the other hand, I think it's harder to maybe, like, bastardize Thor's hammer because, like, the Marvel movies exist. Like, you have these other yeah. examples of pop cultural references to where, like, if you're, you know, you know, you're saying something along those lines of, like, Norse mythology it could very easily shift into that as opposed to being seen as this kind of like white supremacist symbol. Um, mm -hmm. Which is a good thing. I, I'll, I'll, take, yes. I'll, take, I'll take that as a positive. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, you know, the Joker is, like for me, the Joker meme is still, um, oh shoot, what is his name? I absolutely love him and I feel ashamed right now. The actor who played him in the 80s. Cesar Romero, then Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. That will always be Joker to me. Like, no matter what I see, that will always be, that is my archetype Joker. Some people see yeah. Joker as their folk hero, and they organize around him to, I don't know, screw hedge funds and I mean, save GameStop. Yeah, and, and you know, again, it could it's if we're talking about symbols of the time. Like, who's your mm -hmm. Joker? It probably has a lot to do with what era of Batman you grew up in. Mm -hmm. And like some people will see Joker as the incel red or dog whistle or whatever because of their particular cultural positioning and context. So Guy Fox is either a threat or a hero. It gets us a lot into more of the like social perceptual side of perception. So what happens once we actually see it and we observe it. So, you know, if you've got someone who's highly invested in certain aspects of Twitter, Reddit, Tumblr, whatnot, and, and or you've got your kind of like finger to the pulse of social justice and, and individuals who are stirring stuff up, for lack of a better word, you might see that and go like, I see a lot of parallels between mm -hmm. him and, and someone, you know, who would be part of this like incel community. Whereas maybe you don't. Maybe, you know, maybe you see him just as that that symbol of chaos. You know, that Heath Ledger Joker, like just pure, unadulterated, burn it all to the ground just to see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, just to see if you can push someone over the edge. And, mm -hmm. and again, that kind of ties into that smugness. Like, I think Heath, the Heath Ledger Joker really, really taps into that for a lot of people because the way that they would perceive that is that, like, he's you've got this person who's comfortable, you've got this person who's smug, or you've got a system that's comfortable, and this is someone who could shake it up. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we see what happens when that happens. Um, that's a good yeah. example of, you know, hey, let's see, what, let's put someone in power who might shake it up and might burn some stuff to the ground because it's for the lulls. Yeah, for the, for the lulls. For another meme. So mm -hmm. I, I, I would love to pick one of these, maybe not that meme wizard, but pick a meme wizard's brain on like some other things and like put them on the spot and be like, all right, how does like Doge fit into all of this? How does, what is the archetype for, you know, um, just something completely off the wall? Like, mm -hmm. but some of them well, I, I get, and some memes are even about perception themselves. I mean, that, that, 
blue dress, white dress a while back is, is oh a, yeah, a good example of a perfectly visually perceptual meme um, that blew up that could be transferred. There are other examples of things that like depending on the lighting and depending on how you look at it, you might see something very different, like visual <laughs> optical illusions. Perfect. Yeah, no, the blue dress very much encapsulates. At least, a, like, it's a very good little parallel for our conversation we just had about Joker. Yeah, the dress blue yeah. white. I can see it. Two people can see the same thing, but that's kind of, I think, what makes some of this work, and maybe which increases the lifespan. We're talking about the original Dawkins meme. A meme has to live. It has mm -hmm. to exist. It has to serve some function. Maybe the meme has to be at the center, at that like line between group conflict. Yeah, I mean, or or at least for those memes that are, they serve functions, but they serve multiple functions, and those functions are different for different groups. Mm -hmm. So you could have multiple groups rally around the Guy Fawkes mask, multiple groups rally around the Joker, multiple groups rally around some of these concepts, and they could mean completely different things to them. But it's the same symbol, and it serves some function that mm -hmm. group, that culture, that particular mm -hmm. subset of individuals. And that underlying archetype still exists. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I do want to say that uh, a lot of the information I got from, you know, delving into the chaos magic of memes came from the two YouTube channels. One of them is Memes Matter, which is meme analysis. It's wild. Um, I kind of took a purview over our overall look at several of his videos. <laughs> instead of specific ones. Um, and then uh, Angie Speaks does a video on Alan Moore that I oh, cool. also use. So we can link both of those below as well. Yeah, yeah, send those to me, I'll put them in. Um, yeah, I, I got, I got you know, a lot of mine from here and there. I mean, there, there are a lot of really good, like, I mean, even if you wanna avoid any sort of potential pipelines or, you know, paths to, maybe getting into some of the more gritty stuff. There, there are plenty of people who do some pretty good kind of straightforward like analysis of these, not just memes, but of, of aspects of internet history, aspects of um, just odd things on the internet mm -hmm. that I think fascinate us because I mean, like some of these memes that they, they kind of hit this underlying need, this thing that we kind of like, we want to know or they, they're tapping into those basic i don't know i don't want to go too far into young <laughs> so i i guess i should end on our bias of the week oh bias of the week so our our bias this week and it was hard for me to find one that was specifically meme related okay i did find a meme bias the ikea effect Oh. So Norton, Machen, and Arley, uh, 2011. Uh, it's the tendency for people to place a disproportionately high value on objects that they partially assembled themselves, <laughs> such as furniture from Ikea, regardless of the quality of the end result. Okay. And much like internet memes today, people will take great pleasure in the memes that they devise, regardless of the quality of their result. <laughs> <laughs> You're still proud of your meme babies, even though they're not uh, hey, top know, quality memes. You put energy into it, as long as you do so in a non-creepy way. 
<laughs> or in a go, creepy way, it is the internet. No, don't go full Crowley on your memes. You really... Don't go full Crowley. Yeah, that's no, bad for never, your... Uh, never go full Crowley. Your your keyboard will not thank you. That could also be a title for this one. So, <laughs> never go full Crowley. Um, all right. Well, I guess with that, uh, we will we will end our discussion uh, until uh, next week, where I think yes. we'll have another special guest. I think we do have a special guest. I don't know who it is. It'll be a surprise. Um, surprise. So, <laughs> until next week. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. And remember, memes matter.